Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bible Breakdown. Happy Holy Week to you with Easter coming up this Sunday, Good Friday coming up tomorrow as I record on Thursday. I hope that you are able to get some good time this weekend um, with family, that you're able to have some fun and also spend some time just reflecting on how awesome it is that we get to celebrate the biggest holiday on the church calendar when we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. So we are taking a week break from Daniel. So if you're looking for part two of Daniel, it'll be coming next week, but we got to do an Easter lesson. And we are going to be doing this Easter lesson from Hebrews chapter 10. Now, it may seem a little bit strange to have a lesson from the book of Hebrews uh, for Easter, but often the Gospel Project does this. I'm kind of assuming on their reasoning here, but I think the purpose is to show that scripture revolves around Jesus. Nothing we read in the Bible should be separated from our understanding of who Jesus is. We've talked before on the Bible Breakdown. It's probably been a long time. You probably don't remember, but about the difference between a Christocentric view of the Bible or a Christo-iconic view of the Bible. Christocentric would look for how is Jesus explicitly in every passage, whereas a Christo-iconic would say, how does what is happening in this story represent who Jesus is? How is it fully represented in who Jesus is or fully fulfilled. Either way, both ways of understanding, especially when we think about the Old Testament, uh, both of those ways recognize that Jesus is what brings together all of Scripture, that we do not fully understand Scripture until we understand the completed work of Jesus. And Hebrews 10 explains a few things about Jesus' completed work on the cross and how it relates way back to the giving of the Mosaic Law. I had just an, a ton of just joy and opportunity for worship, preparing for this message. Um, there's just a lot in this chapter uh, to worship God for. And so I hope that it will be the case for you as well. So let's dive in. We'll be in chapter uh, 10 of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, and we'll be starting with verses 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So this first paragraph here, these first four verses are one of our best explanations in all of scripture on why the sacrificial system of the law needed to be fulfilled through Jesus, why it was always designed to be fulfilled in a more complete way. This idea, when we've talked probably Hebrews 10.4 is one of our kind of banner verses for how we understand, wait, why wasn't the law, why did the law need to be fulfilled in Jesus? Why was it not the the plan? And here we see it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This idea that these sacrifices were not the complete story, but instead we see this idea that they were a shadow. So the author is explaining that the sacrifices prescribed by the Mosaic law, and that's what we're talking about here, pointed to something greater. The law was a shadow instead of the substance, or as it says here in the passage, the true form there in verse 1. So the problem is the sacrifice of animals doesn't take away sin. And that's part, 
there were a lot of sacrifices that were required in the law, but especially thinking about that uh, sacrifice for atonement um, would be would involve animals. And the reason that it can't take away sin is, is it, it's not an equal substitute. That's one of the reasons that it's important, too, for us to understand that Jesus was fully God, but that he's also fully human. His sacrifice was as one who lived among us, was tempted like people are, though without sin. We know from Scripture that God has created humanity in a way that is special from the rest of creation, that all of his creation is good, but when it comes to humanity, that God decided that we would be his image bearers. That puts us a step above all other creation because God has made it so. So if you think about that, then how could the sacrifices of a lesser being, again, deciding a lesser being based on what scripture teaches us about how valuable humans are to God, not that any of the rest of his creation is not valuable, but how could the experience of a bull or a goat be the same as our experience? That's why it's so important that Christ came, lived among us, was tempted like we are, though huge difference. He was fully God. He was tempted, but he did so without sin. So then in the next set of verses, the author explains how Christ's sacrifice made a major change. Moving into verse five. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Okay, so a lot to unpack here in these verses. Um, This is a quotation from Psalm 40, there in verses 5 through 7, starting with when Christ came into the world, and it says sacrifices and offerings, and going through scroll of the book, that's a quotation from Psalm 40. And in this passage, we're seeing a contrast between the old system of the Mosaic Law and when Christ came into the world. So the author of Hebrews, because if you do not know, we do not fully, we're not fully certain who the author of the book of Hebrews is. But the author is using this passage from Psalm 40 to explain the relationship between the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Law and Christ's sacrifice. So this explanation helps us further understand that the law was a shadow, not the substance. The sacrifices in the law were a shadow in that there was a blood sacrifice for sin. The reason being the punishment for sin is death. Not just death in this life, though that's part of it, but also eternal separation from God. That is the consequence of sin uh, when we are faced with sinning against a holy God. But the fact that animals are not equivalent to humans means it was just a shadow. So it showed the substance in that death is the punishment. Death is what is required for sin. But it wasn't the full picture because... Animals are not equivalent to humans because God has made humans his image bearers. who's just a shadow. So in that way, these sacrifices in the Mosaic Law were a shadow. Now the substance was Jesus, is Jesus. 
a human sacrifice that was equivalent to our experience, but made perfect because Jesus is God and he lived without sin. His sacrifice was perfect. It didn't need to be repeated. The sacrifice was once for all. Like it says there in verse 10, I'll read verse 10 again. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all, it doesn't have to be repeated year after year. And then we're going to see further, even more explanation on that in verses 11 through 14. It says this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The repeated sacrifices of the priests are compared here in these verses to the once for all sacrifice of Jesus. And so this idea that Jesus died, he was offered and then sat down at the right hand of God, it's in recognition that his sacrificial work was finished, that it didn't need to be repeated. He didn't need to be repeatedly sacrificed because his sacrifice was perfect because he is perfect. It's not like the priests who had to regularly offer repeatedly the same sacrifices and for those sacrifices not to be able to actually take away sin. They weren't able to have the same impact, and we'll talk about this later as we talk about the Holy Spirit. The sacrifices of the animals couldn't take away sin, and the sacrifice wasn't equivalent to the punishment that was called for. The sins of humanity could not be atoned for perfectly by the blood of animals because we are not equal. So that's why these sacrifices had to be offered repeatedly because they ultimately they were not once for all sacrifices. Instead, God in his mercy allowed for this to atone for the sins that we had committed. This is a great act. Of, not that the death of Jesus, of course, is the ultimate act of mercy and grace, but this too was an act of mercy and grace that God allowed these sacrifices and the Mosaic law to grant his people clemency for what they'd done. He showed mercy in that he allowed this method for sacrifices instead of us dying and then ultimately being not just dead in this life, but to be eternally separated from him. So, and for those of us who believe in him, this is awesome. And it's used, it's in verse 14. He says, um, by those who are being, he says, those who are being sanctified is how he refers to people who believe in him. He says that we are perfected. This displays this truth that we are declared righteous. We are declared perfect through faith in Jesus by God's grace through faith in Jesus, but also that we are in the process of being sanctified, that ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus that happens in a believer's life. We are at the same time perfected and being sanctified. Now, you would not normally think of those two things happening at the same time, right? If you're perfected, why do you have to be sanctified? This is part of that wonderful mystery that sometimes we call the already but not yet, this idea that eternally uh, or by status, we are perfect, we are children of God, but 
in this life, we are still also being sanctified and we're growing. We haven't reached the pinnacle that has already been promised for us when we are fully redeemed. So we are called those who are being sanctified because we're growing. We're growing to be like and reflect Jesus more and more. That's what the Christian life is. That's kind of the end of the Christian life is that we grow and grow to more and more reflect Jesus. But also with this hope and this assurance that we are already declared righteous because of what Jesus has done by grace through faith in him, we can be declared righteous by God. And so in verses 15 through 18, as we move forward, we see also, as I alluded to earlier, how the work of the Holy Spirit, how the ministry of the Holy Spirit is an integral part of this process as well. Verse 15 says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So this quotation is from uh, the verse 16 and then part of verse 17 after then he adds are quotations from Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, according to the ESV is what is in view there. But the indwelling Holy Spirit for believers, when we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. That's how this idea that God's law is imprinted on our hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying this, is I will put the laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. That's part of, though not the whole, ministry of the Holy Spirit. In this verse, that's kind of, I think, the part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's being referred to. In John 16, Jesus tells the disciples, uh, hey, it's good, actually going to be good for you um, when I ascend to heaven because the Spirit is going to be with you. Um, the counselor, the helper, different words we see in scripture for the Holy Spirit. And he said, he's going to guide you into all truth. And he's going to remind you of the things that I taught you. So this idea that God's law, which of course, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of what it means to follow God. To have the Holy Spirit is to have the truth of God, which if we know and obey the truth of God, then we are effectively making that the law, the right law, not the Mosaic law, but the law of what God has called us to. He said the Holy Spirit will put that law on our hearts and write it on our minds so that we will know what we are supposed to do. Now, there's part of us, obviously, we have to discern the work of the Spirit in our lives sometimes, because sometimes we're like, is that is that something I'm making up or is the Spirit leading me? And again, that's part of that sanctification and learning what it means to follow Jesus but we have this Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. And this quotation through Jeremiah 31 that I will put my laws, This at that point, of course, it was a prophecy, not a uh, reality for humans. It's fulfilled through Jesus, that our sin is not counted against us anymore. That part is in verse 17 and comes from Jeremiah 31, 34. It says, our sins not counted against us anymore, but we are forgiven. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. That's this idea that we are not having our sins continue to count against us through Jesus. And where our sin has been fully forgiven, it says where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any any offering for sin. No more need. When there's that forgiveness, there's no longer need for additional sacrifices. 
sacrifices. And that leads us into this wonderful truth, a paragraph that is titled in the ESV as the full assurance of faith, verses 19 through 25 in Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, these first two verses 19 and 20 they allude to the temple and the holy of holies that was separated by a curtain like it says there in verse 20 through the curtain previously before jesus only the high priest could go in there once a year but through jesus all believers can be in relationship with god not with fear and trembling and i hope he doesn't hurt me but with what we see here confidence. Verse 19, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Because of our great high priest Jesus, we are able to approach God directly. We are able to have a relationship with God. We don't need an intermediary. Because we have had our sin forgiven, it's no longer a barrier between us and a holy God if we have trusted in Jesus that his sacrifice is sufficient for what we've done. That's what it means to have faith in Jesus, to say, I believe what Jesus did is sufficient to cover my sin and to reconcile me to God. And it's because Jesus was willing to take our punishment. And with that in mind, we are exhorted to hold fast to our faith, to our hope. Because remember, I talked about the already things that we're experiencing now, but then the not yet things we have to look forward to. That's our hope. Our hope is that we will be fully redeemed. Our hope is that we will see Jesus face to face, that we will be fully reconciled to God, be made new. That's our hope. And we are told to hold fast, to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And the reason that we can do that is because he who promised is faithful. Because God is faithful, we're holding fast. He's not moving anywhere we're called to hold fast. I don't know if you've ever been tubing. Uh, rarely when you are tubing is the tube going to deflate or detach or what have you. You end up off the tube because you weren't able to hold on well enough, right? There eventually reaches a point where you just can't hold on anymore. You go skidding into the water. It's like it's like that, except for the tube never deflates. The tube never def- de- detaches when we're talking about he who promised. Because he who promised is faithful 100%. We're called to hold fast because when we are holding fast, we can be confident that what we're holding to is not going to falter or fail, but that the confession of our hope is true because he who promised it is faithful, not because people don't break promises, but because God doesn't break promises. God doesn't break his promises. One thing that We see also in the book of Hebrews is this idea 
that God, when he was talking to Abraham, he swore, and this is back from Genesis, and then it's brought back up, that he promised, and then he swore on himself because there was no greater entity to swear upon, so he swore upon himself. It says, so by two unbreakable things, a promise and God himself, his character, that we can be absolutely sure that he is true, that he is who he said he is, that he will do what he said he will do. And a part of what it means to hold fast to our confession, our faith in Jesus, is that we are to stir one another up to love and good works. And we're meant to meet together for mutual encouragement. That's an expected part of how we will live out this confession. A way that we hold fast is by stirring one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another, like, hey, I'm holding on to the tube. You're doing a great job. Keep holding on. Even though it's difficult, hold fast to our confession. Hold fast to our hope, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of conflict, even in the midst of illness, even in the midst of faith, like a faith wavering. Hold fast is the one who promised is faithful. So as we wrap up our lesson today, another thing I just want us to think about as we think through Easter. All of this is made possible. Everything we have looked at in Hebrews 10 is made possible through the resurrection of Jesus. Lots of quote-unquote heroes of our faith and of other faiths have died. Many of them as really good people, they've died, but none of them have risen from the dead like Jesus. This validates everything Jesus taught and did. If he can conquer death, he can do everything he promised. When they went, he wasn't there. And I think this is important for us to think about too when we think about, man, the resurrection happened all this time ago. Like, what? How can we be sure? How can we be sure he did it? Just remember the people who were closest to him, who knew him the best, they were willing to die based on the truth that he had risen from the dead. They were not willing to recant that he had risen from the dead, even when they were threatened and ultimately doled out the consequence of death. People died for something that they saw personally. I've often heard it said that people die for lies, but not for lies that they know are lies. If these people who were these firsthand witnesses were willing to go through torture and death because they believed Jesus rose from the dead, they weren't earning anything for themselves by holding on to that truth. All it earned them was pain and death. But they believed it was true. They saw it. And that's why they were willing to endure that. And I want you to think about this too. When Jesus' friends went to the tomb and found he wasn't there, they knew it was a huge deal, right? They Obviously, the person they thought was dead was alive. That's a huge deal. But they, even knowing that, they probably didn't know just how big a deal it would be for so many people that Jesus rose from the dead. In that moment, as their friend and teacher was shown to be alive, the eternal salvation, the eternal reconciliation to God of untold numbers of people was sealed in that moment. The sacrifices were finished. Sin had a solution. We could be reconciled to God. 
As history unfolds, we rarely recognize the impact as it happens, but with more time, we are able to see the gravity of certain events. So as we celebrate Easter this year, let's think about that event as it unfolded. Put yourself in the, sh- in the position of the ladies who went to the tomb, saw the angels who said he's not here, of Peter and John racing to see, of all the other disciples hearing this report, some with joy, some with doubt. Think what it would have been like. And then as Hebrews 10 leads us to do, think about the impact of what this event has led to for, you, for the world and think about it for you personally. What impact this event had on you, those around you, a once for all sacrifice, a solution to sin, reconciliation between God and people, a people who are being sanctified but are declared perfect. And finally, praise God for what he accomplished and give him the glory that he is due for what happened on the first Easter.